Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DBI's. Tonight's guest is author Christopher Kolakowski. Chris, in addition to being a five-time author, is also the director of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in Madison, Wisconsin. During his lifetime, he also served brilliantly at other distinguished historical museums, such as the Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia, and the General George Patton Museum and Center for Leadership at Fort Knox, Kentucky. In 2009, Chris released his first book, The Civil War at Perryville. Two years later, he released The Stones River and Tullahoma Campaigns. In 2016, he released two more books, The Virginia Campaigns, March to August 1862, and The Last Stand on Bataan, The Defense of the Philippines. And in March this year, he released his fifth book, Nations in the Balance, the India-Burma Campaigns, December 43 to August 1944. Three days from now marks the 80th anniversary of when the American Filipino garrison on Corregidor surrendered to the Japanese Army during World War II. Tonight, Chris and I will discuss the Bataan and Corregidor battles and their impact on American history. Chris, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have thanks you. For having, hey, great, thanks for having me. It's a great honor, Chris. What, Chris, when you served as director of the MacArthur Memorial, did that inspire you to write The Last Stand at Bataan? On the surface, it might, but it, in, actually, I've been wanting to do a book on Bataan for many years. Um, I've been reading about Bataan and Corregidor ever since I was a kid, and I was I was fascinated by the, stu the stories. And I, since 2008, I've been trying to sell a publisher on doing a, a history of Bataan and Corregidor. And I was able, you know, actually in 2012, when I was still at Fort Knox, I signed a deal to do, uh, to do Bataan. And so I came to Norfolk in the MacArthur Memorial knowing that I needed to research in the archives. And I did a lot of that on my, on weekends, you know, working during the week. And, uh, you know, ended up publishing it while I was in Norfolk. But the, the, the two are actually not connected. It's just a happy coincidence. Chris, please tell our listeners about the Bataan and Corregidor campaigns. What exactly happened and why did American Filipino forces retreat to the Bataan Peninsula in the Philippine Islands? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Bataan and Corregidor is it's the largest defeat and the largest surrender in American military history. It was the campaign was fought in the Philippine Islands basically from the beginning of the Pacific War, which on that side of the international dateline was December 8th, 1941, nine hours after Pearl Harbor, but it was already the early morning hours of December 8th. And then it lasts until May 6th, 1942, with the surrender of Corregidor in Manila Bay. It's about 100,000 um, Americans and Filipinos on Luzon Island, and there's about, at the end, there's about 70,000 Japanese, although their strength fluctuates along the way. And um, Douglas MacArthur is the American commander. Masaharu Hama is the Japanese commander. And after some initial bombing attacks over the first few days of the war, the Japanese invade just before Christmas. And uh, the MacArthur tried to defend on the beaches. His army was sort of half ready. And uh, he made an important decision 24 hours um, after the Japanese landings that he needed to activate an old plan called War Plan Orange 3. And basically, the, the assumption of that was that um, if, the, if the defenders in, in, on Luzon fell back to Bataan Peninsula and Corregidor Island, which basically are the mouth of, uh, right on the mouth of Manila Bay, uh, the Japanese can own Manila all they want, 
but without access to the seas past Corregidor and past Bataan, it's useless. As MacArthur said, the Japanese may hold the bottle, I hold the cork. And the idea behind the war plan was that they were supposed to hang out, uh, hold out for about five months until the U.S. Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor could make its way across and relief, relieve the garrison. Of course, the problem is the U.S. Pacific Fleet is largely knocked out during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But nonetheless, they fall back to Bataan and, and certainly hope for the best um, from there. And then in a series of attacks, January, February 1942, the Japanese win some victories, but the Americans end up stopping them cold. It's actually the first uh, tactical victory in the, that the Allied ground forces win against the Japanese in the war. Uh, but at the same time, and, and we can get into some of this a little bit later, uh, starvation is, is wasting away the defenders. The Japanese bring in heavy reinforcements. They launch a final attack on Good Friday, April 3rd, 1942. Um, and within a week, Bataan has folded up and collapsed. And then after a month worth of very severe bombardments, um, they had Japanese invade Corregidor across the two-mile channel uh, separating Bataan from Corregidor and uh, capture that island in basically a day and a half, about 24 hours worth of fighting. And then when Corregidor falls, uh, the rest of the Philippines fall in fairly quick succession. And the Japanese will occupy the islands for basically two and a half years until the Allies, particularly General MacArthur and the Americans, are able to get back to liberate liberate the islands. When you were doing your research, Chris, what were, what, when you were going through the documents and all that, what were your conclusions? How, what is your uh, historical evaluation of General MacArthur's handling of the siege? Those are two, uh, those are two very involved questions. One of the things, I'll, I'll take the first part and talk about the importance of the sources because I was able to go through the headquarters papers, a lot of the stuff that was smuggled out by submarine and airplane before Corregidor's fall. And one of the things that was very interesting in there was to, I was reading phone messages, I was reading the daily situation reports. So I was able to get in MacArthur and his successor, Jonathan Wainwright's heads. I could see what they saw based on what I know of the situation, obviously with hindsight, I could see, look at it through their eyes. I could also see, for example, when paper started to run out, they went from eight and a half by 11 paper to legal size paper. And then when they were starting, you know, and that tells a story in itself. I could watch handwriting get scrunchier as tension built as the, as the siege went along. So those all told stories. And that's one of the things I, I would encourage people to do is if you're studying history, study the primary sources because it gives you an, a glimpse and a connection to those, the people that were there in a way that uh, it's very difficult to find other ways. Um, as for Douglas MacArthur, um, he's, he's the dominant figure for most of this campaign. Um, as you noticed, his name comes up very quickly in the discussion when I gave the quick overview. Um, in my book, I call Baton and Corregidor a personal and professional disaster for Douglas MacArthur, which it, which it is. I mean, he presides over, by, by many reckonings, the greatest defeat in American military history. But I do want to emphasize something that is often overlooked in their assessments of MacArthur. And that is, is that where's home for him in December 1941? He had moved, when he retired from the U.S. Army, he moved to the Philippines 
to be the Philippine Commonwealth, the advisor, military advisor to the Philippine Commonwealth government. He's never going home. Manila is home. He's moved everything out there. He also has his wife and son with him, and his wife actually, or his son actually turns four during the bombing of Corregidor. So not only is he being a four-star general, not only is he commanding the largest American army in combat since 1918, not only is he a symbol of allied resistance to the Philippine people and around the world, he's also got to be a husband and father. And some of the accounts that I've read, um, the, 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 the way that, it, that he and his wife, Jean, leaned on each other during the siege was quite touching. But MacArthur is also convinced that he and his family are going to die in the siege. They are not going to get out of this alive. And he accepts that and tells people that that's what's going to happen. And that his son, when they say, well, what about, what about your son, Arthur? He is a soldier's son. Mm. And he actually tells, he actually tells George Marshall in an official message. He says, my wife and I have discussed and my family will stay here and quote, share the fate of the garrison, unquote. And so the reason I bring all this up is you need to, if there's something when people talk about MacArthur's leadership in the Philippines, and there's, there, are, there are legitimate reasons to, to, to criticize some of his words and actions. But you can't forget this emotional burden that he carries. Mm. And because and, and, and when you realize, when you think about that and you start viewing some of what he says and does through that emotional prism, it makes it more understandable in many ways. So in a sense, after he did the breakout, because uh, about a month, about six weeks ago, there was the anniversary of when he broke out from the Philippines and landed in Australia. So when he made the famous speech, I came through and I shall return, it was logical for him to say that based on that emotional bond that he had with the Philippines based on your research. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. And also he'd been getting messages from Washington saying, we are, we are going to help you if we can. And actually Franklin Roosevelt had said just before new year's, new year's, uh, 1942, he said the, the independence of the Philippines will be redeemed. The entire resources of the United States are behind that pledge. His press secretary said, don't read, and this is a direct quote, don't read too much of the immediate rather than the ultimate into that message. But nonetheless, you know, MacArthur's got a pledge from the American president, we're going to save the Philippines. And mm -hmm. so when he gets to Australia, you know, he's not just saying, expressing his personal wish, although certainly it is a personal crusade for him for the rest of the war, but he's also expressing what he understands to be U.S. policy. Please tell our listeners about General Wainwright, who succeeded MacArthur when MacArthur broke out uh, from the Philippines. Jonathan Wainwright was a uh, actually an extremely accomplished graduate of West Point. He was one of the first captain. He was a first captain of the Corps of Cadets, which is the senior cadet officer. There's only one of those a year. Um, Longtime cavalryman um, ends up being one of MacArthur's senior subordinates. Um, plays a very prominent role in all of the fighting um, during the retreat to Bataan and then on the Bataan Peninsula itself. Um, outstanding leader. Everybody that I that I read about um, or credited him or talked to that served with him had an outstanding reputation, led from the front, um, very modest guy in a lot of ways. 
Um, he is the one who is going to be, as the next senior, is going to be left in charge of the Philippines. He's promoted to lieutenant general and uh, is left in charge of the Philippines after MacArthur leaves. And uh, general, it's on General Wainwright to make decisions that very few Americans have ever had to make in terms of how to surrender and when to surrender and how to manage um, a siege where at the end of the day, as his chief of staff would later say, General Wainwright knew he was going to go down with the ship. And not a lot of American commanders have ever faced this situation quite like he did. But his personal leadership um, you know, made a difference. The last transmission um, from Corregidor, uh, one of the guys said, General Wainwright's a right guy, and we would go on with him. But the implied message is that the Japanese, you know, are just too much. Um, he's the highest ranking American prisoner of war um, in World War II. He's treated, he's treated badly by the Japanese, um, partly because of the prestige of being the highest ranking allied or American prisoner of war. But at the end of the war, MacArthur finds him in a prisoner of war camp, has him flown to Japan, and he actually stands behind MacArthur as a, uh, a tribute to the defenders of Bataan and Corregidor. He's the symbol. He stands behind MacArthur when MacArthur's on the deck of the USS Missouri and signs accepting the Japanese surrender at the end of the war. In fact, MacArthur gives Wainwright a signing pen, which today is in the, is in the uh, museum at West Point up in uh, New York. Wood, please tell our listeners about the Bataan Death March, one of the uh, early, one of the great atrocities against U.S. forces during World War II. When most people think of Bataan, that's the first thing they think of, because that's what most people have heard of. And, I, and understandably so, the Bataan Death March, you're right, is one of the great atrocities of the Pacific War. The fact that the Japanese in their school curriculums often don't teach it or downplay it is still a geopolitical issue in Asia today. Mm. So everything we're talking about is not ancient history. Mm. Here's the short, short version. Um, when the 76,000 Americans and Filipinos surrender on Bataan, uh, they have been on half rations or worse since January of 1942. So you can imagine the physical condition a lot of these men are in. And there are, there are men. They're all men. Uh, they're the, the female nurses on Bataan had escaped to Corregidor. The Japanese start marching them out. They had not expected 76,000 people. They had only expected about 40,000 people. So their logistics break down very quickly. Um, but the physical condition of the people, also the, the attitude of the Imperial Japanese Army where surrender is dishonorable in the extreme. And when you become a prisoner of war, you are, if, if a Japanese gets captured in the war and is, is prisoner of war, they are considered dead to their family back home and considered it's just an extreme disgrace. So if the Japanese soldier believes that about being captured in battle, you can imagine how they view these Americans and Filipinos um, who have just surrendered. 66 miles on the road from out of Bataan up to uh, Camp O'Donnell in central Luzon. And um, of the 76,000 that start, 54,000, only 54,000 reach Camp O'Donnell. Gee. Over 11,000 die on the road. There's about 5,000 that are left behind to clean up the battlefields, another 5,000 or so in hospitals, but over 11,000, the majority of them Filipino, 
but uh, at least 650 Americans die on the road. And a lot of times it's because the Japanese are, are being murderous. There's a lot of situations of brutality. There are situations of, you know, men being, being put next to wells and the Japanese um, not letting them get water. You know, just a lot of just cruelty. Yeah. And actually, there were more people that died on the road out of Bataan during the Bataan Death March than had during the entire siege of Battle of Bataan over the previous four months. If I recall reading correctly, there were a couple of American escapees that managed to break loose, fall in with Filipino guerrillas, and actually they managed to make their way back to Australia, where they, that's where word got out about the Bataan Death March. Is that correct? That is correct. You have a couple of uh, several guys and some of the accounts of people like Russell Volkman and Ray Hunt who escaped the death march and there are some others um, and become guerrillas. I mean, they are just, they're, they're incredible stories. Um, and then you get some guys who survived the march. Ed Dias is one who comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, he escapes in 1943, makes his way by submarine and then you know, tells his story, and there are several others that tell the story, and that's the first most people have heard of these captives to say nothing of the death march. And it's a, it's a, President Roosevelt's the one who says, publish it in the Chicago Tribune, publish the story. And Dias, he dies in a plane crash in 1943, unfortunately, but uh, that's that shocks the world. It got reprinted in Life magazine, and it really. It really shocked the world. And in case anybody needed any evidence of, of, you know, what kind of the ferocity of the Imperial Japanese Army, Dias's story certainly was was good evidence for it. Now, when the Japanese attacked Corregidor, is it true that their amphibious force sustained very heavy casualties on that night when they tried to land on the island? Is that correct? It is. On the night of uh, for your listeners, on the night of May 5th, the Japanese invade on the western tip of Corregidor. Corregidor is shaped kind of like a tadpole with the head swimming out of Manila Bay to the west. And so the tail is to the east, and they land on the tail. And actually, they suffer so many casualties at the hands of the marine defenders. Hama thinks that the invasions failed. But he sends reinforcements, including a few barges that have tanks on them. And so the next morning, when these tanks land and start pushing, pushing west toward the middle part of the island where General Wainwright's headquarters are, the Americans don't have any tanks or anti-tank weapons. They don't have any tanks on the island either. And the only infantry that they have really to support uh, and to hold off the Japanese that are advancing are mostly artillerymen that have been converted into infantry. So they're while they can put up a good hard fight against Japanese veteran infantrymen, there's a there's a qualitative difference that is difficult for the Americans to overcome. And it becomes clear by mid-morning, Wainwright realizes, particularly with the tanks coming, and they're through binoculars, they can see more invasion forces massing on Bataan. And he realizes, his, his nightmare he later wrote in his memoir was that one of those tanks was gonna stick its, stick its gun into Malinta Tunnel, which is where the hospitals and the headquarters were in the middle part of the island, and just start spraying the area with machine guns. And in a, you know, in a concrete tunnel, you can imagine the effect that would have had. Yeah. And he, he, he realizes, you know, this, we could hang on for another day, but what's the point? 
and he tells his chief of staff, he gathers several of his senior officers and says, this thing has to be stopped in daylight. We can't surrender at night. We have to get this done now and orders time to, time to run up the white flag. And, and then that's the other thing I would just mention, just one more thing real quick. When we, you look at the defenders of Corregidor, 14,000 is the number that surrender on Corregidor. A lot of them are headquarters, a lot of them are coast artillery, a lot of them are not trained infantrymen. Mm. Uh, the Corps is the 4th Marine Regiment, and then there's some other infantry detachments here and there. But, you know, you talk about 14,000, really the available infantry strength of that garrison is probably probably three or 4,000 at best. Yeah. And they're, and they're scattered all over the island, whereas the Japanese are focused in one area. Where at the end, when it all ended, where where were American and Filipino POWs held in captivity in the Philippines? Where were their camps? That's actually a depends on who you are. Okay. The Filipinos are all released. The Japanese released the Filipinos as a part of a general amnesty on July fourth, nineteen forty-two. Just kind of a way to curry favor. A, it backfires on them because many of these trained Filipino soldiers then go into guerrilla units and start the resistance movement. Mm. The Americans, of which there's probably about 13 or 14,000 held on the islands, are held initially at O'Donnell, ultimately at Cabanatawan in the center part of Luzon. There's some camps down in the southern part of the islands in Mindanao, which is where Dias escapes from in 1943. And then you've got a couple of camps in Manila. And then many of these men are moved via hell ship, um, you know, packed like sardines of holds of Japanese, unmarked Japanese uh, freighters, some of which are sunk by American submarines, and shipped all over, all over the empire, to the home islands, to Korea, to Manchuria, to Formosa, um, to work as slave labor for the Japanese war effort. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, and they end up all over the place. Okay, because wasn't Rainwright? He was held at Mukden in Manchuria, wasn't he? Correct. He actually uh, they goes from Manila. He spends some time in Formosa, and then ends up in Mukden, where he's liberated. Um, but they send an OSS detachment in of special, you know, special special uh, commandos to find Wainwright and find the senior officers, so and hopefully their guards haven't killed him yet. And uh, they find him in Mukden and uh, fly him out. And that's, it's from there that Wainwright gets uh, transported to Japan to the deck of the Missouri. Chris, please tell our, re please tell our listeners, where can they find all your books? My books are available on Amazon.com. They're available um, both in print and in Kindle. Um, you can find them in some of the other um, some of the others as well, like Barnes & Noble and some of the other online booksellers. Um, and then in any any uh, book, national book chain as well, um, you can find them online. Chris, what will be your next book project and when can we expect its release? I'm actually working on a, uh, a book about Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr., who was the 10th Army commander and uh, was commander on Okinawa and is the senior American killed by enemy fire in World War II and in the 20th century. Um, I'm editing and transcribing his full diaries, which have never been fully published. Mm. And uh, that should be out in, it's called 10th Army Commander is what it is, the t working title of the book. And it should be out uh, sometime, probably, hopefully spring of 2024. 
Chris, let me know when it officially comes out. I'd love to have you on my show again because uh, I, I would. Uh, that's fascinating. I would love to. I would love to have you on my show again, where we can talk about that book. In fact, I wouldn't mind having you on the show in the future. Where we could talk about your Civil War book, since uh, some uh, anniversaries are coming up quite soon. Like you know, the Virginia campaigns. You know, a few months from now. I'd love to talk to you about that at Perryville. Uh, if that's okay with you. No, that sounds great. I'd, I'd love to do it. So let's uh, let's set it up. I'd love to come back. Chris, uh, last question. Whenever I interview an author, I always ask this a single standard question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become a writer and author and perhaps influence your own personal writing style? That's a great question. And uh, it, I loved Tom Clancy books. I loved John Tolan's books. David, I love David McCullough's books. Mm. And one of the things that I love about all of them is that uh, what you do is, is no matter what you're explaining, no matter what you're doing, tell a story. Mm. Take time to explain, tell a story, make it understandable. You know, Tom, if you've read any of John Toland and, and McCullough are fantastic storytellers. One of the things I liked about Tom Clancy was that he could do a very good job, even if you had no familiarity or very little familiarity with what he was talking about. He explained it to you in such a way that you could understand what he's trying to convey, even if it's something like really technical, like how a nuclear reactor works or how some, you know, like a, a submarine warfare in Red Storm Rising, you know, that sort of thing, how that works. He's able to do it in an understandable way, and and those are lessons that I took away. Is that no matter what, no matter what I'm presenting, find a way to tell a story, find a way to present it in a way that is understandable to the broadest possible audience. You know, you don't get lost in the jargon. Don't get lost in, you know, getting too technical because then you're going to lose people, and perhaps even worse, you may not just turn them off. You may make them not like what you're trying to say. And that's counterproductive. And that's what I took away from those three authors, for sure. Chris, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show. And again, uh, you're welcome to come back anytime. Uh, keep, you know, keep me apprised of your future publications and we'll set it up. Okay, Chris? Hey, sounds great. I look forward to it. Please take care and be safe. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing hockey historian George Grimm. Thank you and good night.